Hello, curious listener. I'm your host, Michelle O'Dell. Welcome back to Corn Fed Killer. This is part two of the Barbara Hoffman murder case. If you have not listened to part one, I encourage you to go back and give it a listen before listening to this part, part two. Alrighty. When we left off, Barbara Hoffman had been arrested for the murder of Harry Burge, and a preliminary hearing in the case confirmed that probable cause had been proven and she would stand trial for Harry Burge's murder. Barbara Hoffman, you recall, is out on bail at this point, and she is still seeing Jerry Davies on the regular, even though he is the one who told the police about he and how he and Barbara had hidden Harry's body in a snowbank. Poor Jerry, you see, he is still one smitten kitten, and he believes wholeheartedly in Barbara's innocence. You remember that $750,000 life insurance policy that Barbara and Jerry had taken out for Jerry? Well, the balance of the premium was due a bit over $6,000. Barbara didn't have the money, so she called her old lackey, Al Mackey, (laughs) for help. She tried to negotiate on behalf, he tried to negotiate on her behalf with the insurance company, but was unsuccessful. So she consulted her hotshot attorney, Don Eisenberg. He advised her to cancel the policy she didn't want to. She really didn't want to. But she finally did agree. And the policy was canceled. Cheryl Davies actually had a smaller life insurance policy of $20,000 that was still active. And in which Barbara Hoffman was the beneficiary. As the trial loomed, the media continued to be enamored with Miss Barbara Hoffman. She continued to lay low, not giving interviews, not talking to anybody. On March 27th, crime reporter Anita Clark, who had been assigned to Barbara's case, received a very strange letter. The letter was postmarked on March 25th, but had no return address. The letter was handwritten, and it read, quote, I want to write these letters because I want to set the record straight. I was scared. I was jealous. Barb is innocent, and I wrecked her life. All those stories I told about Barb are false. She never had anything to do with the body at all. She never did. I went crazy. I was so scared. The police scared me. I was crazy and didn't know what I was saying. Then I had to keep telling that same story or they would charge me with a crime. Now they did it to Barb instead. And I didn't know what to do anymore except tell the truth. I'm not afraid to go to jail anymore. Barb never had anything to do with a body at all. I swear it. And they can do what they want with me. End quote. The letter was signed, Sincerely, Gerald Thomas Davies. What the hell? Could this be true? 
Could Gerald have actually murdered Burge instead of Barbara? Well, curious listener, you be the judge. It's clear to me that she killed him. But what do you think? So reporter Anita Clark called District Attorney Doyle and told him about the letter that she had received. I give her a commendation for this. I give her kudos because she could have went straight to the press, but she didn't. She called the DA. She met with him in his office, and they were joined joined by ADA John Burr. Uh, you recall Burr is the lead prosecutor in the case against Barbara. And they were discussing what to do about the letter when assistant prosecutor Chris Spencer knocked on DA Doyle's door and showed him the same letter, also handwritten and signed Gerald Thomas Davies. So the four of them discussed what to do about the letters. They decided to sit on them meaning they decided to not say anything to anyone about the letters just yet. Meanwhile, that very afternoon, the afternoon of March 27th, 1978, the dead body of Gerald Davies was discovered in the bathtub at his Madison apartment. Steve Urso was one of the first responding officers on the scene. Urso happened to be Detective Chuck Lulling's nephew. He, of course, knew of the Barbara Hoffman Hoffman murder case and of Davy's connection to it, and so he called his uncle as well as D.A. Doyle from the scene. Doesn't this make you sad? Poor Jerry. Gerald Davy's nude body was lying in about two inches of water in his tub, So it would seem that he wasn't taking a bath when he died. Odd. Seems odd. Unless somehow the plug got pulled by his foot or something. Uh, Even more odd was the fact that the fingers on one of his hands were cupping his penis. His toes and his fingertips were purplish in color. His nostrils and mouth were also rimmed with a purplish tint, showing signs of lividity. This meant that Gerald Davies had been dead for a little while. This did not happen today, on March 27th. The interesting thing about the body was that there were no obvious signs of distress. No bruises, no wounds, no cuts, no blood. No strangulation marks, no nothing. Police did find an empty bottle of Valium on the toilet tank. Could he have overdosed on Valium? That seemed unlikely, especially since there were no signs of him having vomited or anything like that. His face looked calm as can be. One of the investigators described it as such, quote, Death had given him what life had refused him, an appearance of serenity, end quote. Uh, I don't know about you, curious listener, but that really got to me. I don't know why, but it really got to me. It's a little heartbreaking, don't you think? Poor Jerry. A handwritten letter matching the letters received by Chris Spencer and Anita Clark was also present at the scene. Could this be a sort of suicide note? Could Jerry have killed himself because of the guilt he felt for going to police about the body? 
Detectives questioned his neighbors. No one saw or heard a thing. No one saw anyone entering or leaving his apartment. Maybe it was a suicide. The autopsy of Gerald Davies found no signs of Valium in his system at all. And Valium seemed to the medical examiner a very odd choice for suicide. At the time, there were no documented cases of an overdose of Valium resulting in death. The stomach contents showed that he had eaten shortly before his death and what appeared to be chili. His time of death was determined to be between 5 and 7 on March 25th. So that explains the purplish color of his toes and fingers and around his nostrils and mouth. The ME noted that his lungs were twice the average size due to pulmonary edema, and which is just swelling, pulmonary lung swelling, and hemorrhage, which is consistent with asphyxia due to drowning. Was it possible that he drowned in the tub? How could he have? Remember, the tub was not full. Very little water was in it at all. But stranger things have happened, right? It is possible to drown in a small amount of water. But his body showed no signs of distress. Usually with a drowning, especially if he drowned in the tub and was flat, you know, thrashing around, he would have bruises or some kind of marks, you would think. So this is weird. It's very weird. The pathologist looked for needle marks on Gerald's body, thinking that maybe he was injected with a poison or that he injected himself with something. He didn't find any, nor did the tests show any poisons in his system. Everything seems to point to a mysterious suicide. The letters could definitely be construed as suicide notes, I suppose, and as you know, and knowing Gerald Davies, we know that he's a very anxious person. And he was, in fact, racked with guilt for getting Barbara into trouble. Furthermore, as we know, he was completely in love with Barbara. Did he find out that she had a relationship with Harry and decide to end his life? Or maybe he just couldn't live with the guilt anymore. It all definitely seemed plausible but not to Detective Chuck Lulling. Detective Lulling pointed out that there were two towels laid out in the bathroom and his slippers were neatly placed next to the tub. He was cleanly shaven and detectives found his rent check made out for April. Would a man who was planning on killing himself lay out towels and slippers and if he was planning on offing himself, why would he write a check for next month's rent? And what about the letters? Lulling didn't think they were suicide notes at all. For instance, the letters mentioned that he wasn't afraid to go to jail, that he didn't care what happened, or didn't care what they, you know, the police, did to him. So clearly he was talking about future repercussions about what would happen after the letters were read, were delivered. So why would he write about future happenings if he knew he was going to kill himself? No, Lulling believed that Barbara Hoffman was behind this. 
the detectives had quite a job ahead of them in trying to find evidence that Barbara had committed a second murder, that Barbara had murdered Jerry Davies. On April 7, 1978, Barbara Hoffman was arraigned for the murder of Harry Burge. There was a media frenzy, of course. Everyone wanted a glimpse of the genius college girl turned queen of the massage parlors and suspected murderer. Her attorney, Don Eisenberg, shielded her from the press. Barbara remained expressionless as she entered the courtroom. Judge Charles Jones presided that afternoon. Eisenberg complained to the judge about the press. He also argued that Davis's letter constituted new evidence. And as a result, he wanted the case to be bumped back to the county court for a new preliminary hearing. The judge denied that request and asked Barbara Hoffman to enter a plea. She remained silent. The judge had a not guilty plea entered for her, but a trial date was not set as Eisenberg stated that he was going to be filing motions for dismissal and for a new hearing. The judge allowed Barbara to exit the building through his chambers so that she wouldn't be hounded by the press. Attorney, attorney Don Eisenberg, however, walked right out of, out of the court on the front steps and held a press conference. During this press conference, he fervently denied that Barbara had any connection to the massage parlors or to, you know, Madison's seedy underground at all. He said she was not the queen of massage parlors. This, of course, is a blatant out-and-out -out lie. He also stated that the police had bullied Gerald Davies into making a statement. We know that's a lie as well. And he, of course, pointed to the letters written by Jerry, stating that they were obviously suicide notes and clearly showed his guilt and exonerated his client, Barbara Hoffman. Meanwhile, Gerald Davies' body was still lying at a state crime lab in Madison, where just one day after the arraignment, Toxicologist Kenneth Kempfert made a shocking discovery that would blow this case wide open. Kempfert had been testing Davies' Davies's body since March 28th, trying to find any traces of poisonous chemicals that may have killed him. From the first day, he noticed that Davies' body emitted a really peculiar smell and it wasn't the formaldehyde or any of the chemicals that they used in the lab, but he couldn't place it. Then, all of a sudden, it dawned on him. It finally hit him. The smell was of burnt almonds. Cyanide poisoning leaves a smell of burnt almonds. How had the medical examiner Bill Bauman missed this, Comfort wondered. Well, upon researching cyanide poisoning and the telltale smell of burnt almonds, Kempfert discovered that about a quarter of the population, due to a minor hereditary defect, cannot perceive the smell of burnt almonds. 
So medical examiner Bauman must have been one of the 25% who couldn't smell it. So luckily for Davies and for us and the detectives on the case, Kempfert could smell it. So Kempfert needed to run the test to identify cyanide in the blood. He did, and he found that Gerald Davies had twice the lethal dose of cyanide in his blood. Bingo! Well, upon hearing this, Detective Lulling said, hey, you better test Harry Burge's blood too. Get a hold of some of his blood and test that. Lulling postulated that Barbara Hoffman had made chili for Gerald Davies and laced it with cyanide. Gerald Davies wouldn't have known or suspected a thing. He would just think how sweet it was that his fiance had made him chili and brought it to his home to eat. Lulling thought chili the perfect food to cover cyanide. The spices in the chili would have covered any smell or odd taste of the cyanide. So Kempfer did test Harry, Day Harry Burgess's blood for cyanide. And well, wouldn't you know it, it was indeed present in Burgess's blood. As a matter of fact, Burgess's blood contained 37 times the lethal dose of cyanide. Maybe they would get Barbara after all. So if Barbara poisoned Burge and Davies with cyanide, where did she get it? That's what they have to figure out now because you can't just walk into a store and buy cyanide. So the investigators checked with local pharmacies. Only one carried cyanide at all and the one bottle that they had had not been touched in three years. So that's a dead end. There was one metallurgical company who carried cyanide, but it was only available in 200 pound drums and was not sold to individuals. It was just sold to companies that used it, factories and so forth. So no dice there. Aha, what about the University of Wisconsin? Barbara was or had been a biochemistry student. She would have had access to the labs on campus so off to the University of Wisconsin, detectives go, and as it would turn out, the university purchased cyanide by the pound for use in the science labs. 21 labs on campus used it. Biochemistry professor Bruce Salmon told police that Barbara had been a student of his and that they indeed kept cyanide in the lab. In fact, he told them that a quarter pound of cyanide was missing. Another professor who also taught Barbara Hoffman told police that they had studied the effects of cyanide on the human body in class. She had gotten an A-plus in that class, so she would have known what it does to the body. Additionally, several individuals, professors, and students reported having seen Barbara around the labs in 1977, even though she was not enrolled as a student then. Barbara could have easily stolen the cyanide from one of the labs on campus, the lab that was missing the quarter of bottle. She could have definitely done that. So several jars on campus were dusted for fingerprints, but they had been handled by so many people, it was impossible to isolate the fingerprints as belonging to one person. So this evidence, if you could even call it that, is circumstantial at best. Shit, 
<laughs> Can you imagine being the detectives on this case? It would be hella frustrating. I really commend them for not giving up. It seems like they're hitting roadblocks, you know, at every turn. All right. So a former colleague of Detective Lullings came to him with a very interesting story. A man named Curtis, he told Lulling that he knew Barbara well. He was an owner of some of the city's massage parlors. He told Lulling that a friend of his told him that Barbara had mentioned to him that she was about to be a very rich woman. She told him that there was an ex inexperienced older man who had fallen in love with her and whom she was playing for a $1 million life insurance policy. She told this guy that she was going to marry him and then poison him during the honeymoon in Mexico and claim he had died of food poisoning. Then have him quickly cremated. Then playing the grieving widow and collecting the money, of course. Curtis said that it was such a crazy story, he hadn't really thought much about it until Gerald Davies was found dead. He said that after he heard it, he went and talked directly to Barb. He tells Detective Lulling that he went to her apartment to talk with her about it. And she said that, oh, he, you know, the friend who had heard it, it must have been high or drunk or whatever. And he told her, you know, insurance company scams rarely work and you should not try that. And Curtis noticed while he was there a chalkboard on the fridge that appeared to have a to-do list printed on it. He saw two items on it that were checked off. One of them read marriage license and the other one read passport. He claimed that Barbara saw him looking at it and, he, and that she tried to block him from seeing what it said. He continued his story by saying that he talked to Barbara about this murder plot a second time. He says that he went back to her apartment and this time he noticed that the chalkboard was completely blank. And during his visit, he says that Barbara finally admitted to him that she was planning to murder a shipping clerk at the University of Wisconsin for $750,000. Boom. They have a witness. Jerry was a shipping clerk and his insurance money was for $750,000. The only drawback is that he isn't the most credible witness, this Curtis, because he did have a criminal record and he was involved in the massage parlor business, but still it was something. They had someone. All right. So next they need to find out if Barbara had obtained a marriage license. The county clerk verified that yes, indeed, Barbara Hoffman and Gerald Davies had applied for a license in April of 77. And he was, they were also to obtain also able to confirm a passport in Davies Davies's name and one in Linda Miller's name. At the same time in May of 77, the pieces were starting to come together. Police take another look at Barbara's financials, her financial records. They show that she took out various loans for amounts between $500 and $3,000 from the University of Wisconsin Credit Union, as well as several other area banks, all of which were co-signed by a different man with a good credit history. Police tracked down the men, and most of them are really reluctant to talk because they knew her 
from the massage parlors. They were regular clients of hers. And they were embarrassed and they didn't want, in most cases, a lot of the cases, they didn't want their wives to find out. But they all said the same thing, that she would make the first few payments on the loans and then default, leaving the co-signer to pay the rest. And if they didn't pay, she threatened to tell their wives or to out them in some way. She even called one guy at home when he missed a payment, telling him he'd better pay or her next call would be to the wife. Meanwhile, Ruth Davies, Gerald Davies' mother, informed detectives that the insurance company had told her that Barb had filed a claim for the insurance money. Remember that $20,000 policy? The insurance company told her that if she, if she, Barbara, was not charged with a crime involving Gerald Davies, that she would be entitled to the money. Detectives got the insurance company to hold off for a little while until they could complete the investigation. In May of 78, a hearing was held. Judge Charles Jones presided once again. At the hearing, Barbara's attorney, Don Eisenberg, asked for a dismissal, stating, quote, massive prejudicial publicity has created a tremendous bias in violation of the defendant's Fifth Amendment right to the due process of law, end quote. The prosecution could not believe what they were hearing. Don Eisenberg was the source of a lot of that media attention himself. He, Don Eisenberg filed seven motions for dismissal that day. The judge said that he would rule on the dismissal in August. Well, he ended up not ruling until September 21st, and he rejected all of the motions for dismissal. But he did allow the case to be bumped back to county court for a preliminary hearing. A preliminary hearing was held on November 16th, and the judge ruled that probable cause was not proved and the state would not move forward with the case against Barbara Hoffman for the murder of Harry Burge. Her trial was dismissed. Can you fucking believe this? After all the work that the police and the prosecution had done on this case, not to mention Harry Burgess's family, there's no justice here for them. Well, hold up, curious listener. This story has another twist turn. Are you ready? As Barbara Hoffman and attorney Don Eisenberg made their way down the courthouse steps that day after the dismissal, two police officers, one holding a warrant, arrested Barbara for the murders of Harry Burge and Gerald Davies. Bam! <laughs> Woohoo, right? And I have to tell you that there that her nutbag attorney was having none of it. And he stepped between the police and Barbara. He was screaming at them, pushing at them. He actually had to be restrained. What the fuck? Don't you think that's a little much? Yes, you know, an attorney is supposed to protect their client. Um, but you don't interfere with the police. It, it makes you think that their relationship was maybe a little more than attorney-client. That's something that you might do if your wife or your girlfriend, your spouse, was getting arrested, not your client. It's very odd. You might be wondering how Hoffman could be charged with the murder of Harry Burge again. 
when she had already been charged with the same crime, double jeopardy and all, right? Well, in Wisconsin, the law allowed the same charge to be brought against a person if new evidence emerged, and it had, the cyanide. Investigators still needed to find a way to prove that Barbara had obtained it, and so that's what they set about doing. They take a closer look at Gerald Davies' bank account as well, and they notice that he wrote several checks to a company called Labs, L-A-A-B-S. Labs happened to be a chemical supply company. Detectives discovered that a large order had been placed for beakers and test tubes, as well as other lab equipment and chemicals, including cyanide. The order was placed by a woman, Labs told them, and the order was delivered in four separate shipments, all cash on delivery and all paid by check by Gerald Davies. Three shipments were delivered to Barbara's apartment, and one was delivered to Gerald Davies' apartment, all by the United States Postal Service. The cyanide, however, was delivered separately by a commercial trucking company, as the USPS does not handle or deliver poisonous chemicals. The cyanide was delivered to Gerald Davies' Davies's apartment and was paid for by him with a check. Are you getting, are you understanding the irony here? This poor guy, poor Jerry, paid for the cyanide that would ultimately kill him. Oh my God, this poor bastard. I bet fucking Barbara enjoyed that irony. She's, you know, oh, it's sickening. So after a succession of motions filed by douchebag, I mean, Don Eisenberg and several delays, Barbara Hoffman's double murder trial began on June 19th of 1980. The media was still everywhere still very much enamored by this mysterious black widow in her nerdy tortoiseshell glasses. One reporter, Jackie Mitchard, described her as having a, quote, galvanized self-possession, a grace and coolness that mystified some and made others uneasy, end quote. Barbara remained calm and silent throughout the trial, not betraying any emotion, not even when crime scene photos were shown. The jury deliberated for just 14 hours, and they came back with a verdict. The jury found Hoffman guilty of the murder of Harry Burge, but get this, not guilty of the murder of Gerald Davies. This boggles the mind. I'm not sure how the jurors came to a not guilty verdict for the murder of Gerald Davies, but you know, whatever, she would still be sentenced to life in prison. And in Wisconsin, life in prison was the automatic sentence for an offender who was guilty of first-degree murder. But Barbara would be eligible for parole in just 11 years and four months. That, to me, is bunk. 11 years for murder? Nah. I don't know if the law in Wisconsin still like that, but that's what it was in, in 1980. Supposedly, Barbara found religion in prison. Don't they all? <laughs> but her demeanor did not change. She remained quiet and self-possessed, calm and cool. 
She denied giving any interviews, and she remained silent. When she did come up for parole, she came before the parole board in 1991. After those 11 years, she was denied parole. After that, she had her name removed from the eligibility of parole, and she remains in prison. She is still in prison today and shows absolutely no interest in ever getting out. As for Eisenberg, this gives me joy. <laughs> His license to practice law was revoked in 1984, or suspended, I'm sorry, in 1984 for conflict of interest in Barbara Hoffman's case. I guess I wasn't the only one thinking something weird was going on there. And in 1988, his license was outright revoked. And the reason given then was financial improprieties. He would never practice law again. And to that I say, good deal. Oh, and one final note. Remember that $20,000 life insurance policy for Davies? Barbara ended up getting half of it. The $10,000. The other half went to his mother. That makes me mad. <laughs> Woo. All right. Thank you so much for sticking with me, Curious Listener. I know that was a long one, but I just felt like I couldn't have just glossed over the details and, you know, told you that Barb was playing two dudes and both of them wound up dead. End of story. You know, the de details, I think, really make the story interesting from discussing the how the police came about gathering their evidence as well as, you know, the mysterious killer and the victims. And didn't you feel just so sorry for poor Jerry Davies? Such a sad story. I mean, it's really, you know, fundamentally at its, at its core, it's a sad, sad story. And, you know, and it's sad Barbara, too, so charming and so intelligent, you know, giving up a successful life as a scientist to become a murderer for money. Sad. Okay. But, you know, she was very intelligent, but not intelligent enough to get away with murder. Well, at least not with two murders. Follow us on social media to see pictures and whatnot. Until next time, curious listener. Have a wonderful, wonderful holiday. <laughs>